Welcome to PNCC Speak, the language of executives. I'm Saskia Epstein, Senior Vice President of Client and Community Relations for PNC Bank in New England. And I'm here alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, Saskia. It's great to be with you on PNCC Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. In this series, we're featuring leaders named among the Boston Business Journal's Power 50. We're here today with movement maker Reginald Swift, founder and CEO of Rubik's LS. Thank you for having me. You know, I thought we could start by you telling our listeners a little bit about you and your career journey. You founded Rubik's in 2016. Tell us a little bit about how did you get there? I actually started out in the aerospace field, right? So I, I actually thought that I was going to be, you know, in the aerospace market and be an engineer to be an engineer for, for quite a while. But then, you know what? Over time, I saw my path change. And initially, I actually was attracted to doing aerospace because I was, you know, as a young kid, I would be out, you know, watching at the airports when we were allowed to, right, to watch the planes fly. And it was those types of memories that allowed me to want to maturate uh, innovation, right, in that area and be able to be a part of that industry. So it's just kind of a funny story where that I started out in aerospace because of my father, but also when I transitioned away from aerospace because the market was shrinking, I actually moved here to Boston from Connecticut and uh, I find myself, you know, in the biggest biotech hub in the U.S., right? One of the biggest, right, other than California. So when my father got sick and Tommy passed away, it was actually because of him that I actually dived into healthcare, right, in, in life sciences. And, you know, at the same time, I was within the, the biotech healthcare space. I was also doing consulting for a number of different healthcare centric organizations because of the familiarity of quality systems to be able to create. So that opportunity for me to think through how to, you know, leverage kind of my, my regulated industry experience into the healthcare market was was a value added proposition for me. So I was able to kind of leverage into that area. And then, you know, doing that for a number of years, I decided to, you know what, I actually wanted to make a difference and uh, really create products for people, you know, like my father and others, you know, who have not been able to see the light of day or gain that access. And the initial settings of Rubik's was born, right? And that's kind of how that really started. So between aerospace, industrial markets, commercial applications, and now in healthcare. And I, I went through kind of a rainbow effect. That's such an amazing journey and a lot of evolution, I'm sure. I wonder if you can share a little bit more with our listeners about Rubik's. What did you set out to do with the company and what were some of the key milestone moments over the last six years? So Rubik's actually went through an evolution at different times during the course of its life from seven years ago. And what we believe, what we started as, as a product development house, you know, we were focused on helping companies create products for, for the specific markets, right? Within either as like a biotech company, med tech, or even, you know, pure pharmaceutical. But our core focus at the time was still looking at access for specific areas where patients like us can experience that access and be able to gain access to that innovation and making sure that we actually take data that can accommodate those nuances of patient profiles, right? From specific demographics, right? From black, brown, Asian, Native American, and other types that we haven't seen yet to, to gain that access. Uh, so that's kind of where our focus was early on. 
But then we realized that as the emergence of digital health came about, we realized that we wanted to be able to, and we were also working with the uh, Department of Defense, more so DARPA, because we actually had a product that we were funded by them, get into the into the specific market. And we were actually in our own phase one, phase two type of trials. And as we realized that, as we got our products to, to the hospitals and clinical centers, we realized that the patients, not for nothing, that we actually had in these trials weren't actually representative of the demographic that we actually did planning for. We wanted to really uncover how that came to be, right? And because at the same time that the digital health market was actually you know, growing and, and increasing its footprint, we wanted to be able to take a look at how digital health and how we can be able to also communicate to specific underrepresented demographics utilizing digital health. We started evolving ourselves to now focus ourselves as a specialty population contract research organization dedicated to ensuring that when we think about clinical trials and early stage clinical research, we have those patients front and center as well. That could be in cities like Lawrence, that could be in cities like Acton, Framingham, and other parts of the world as well, where they have still the same access as you would from a from like downtown Boston and Cambridge, right? So we'll still want to be able to help accommodate anybody anywhere with the same type of level of, of sophistication that we have from these types of systems as well. So, you know, we're dedicated in ensuring that has that uh, impact towards those types of patient groups, right? So there's companies that will be able to create platforms, companies that will be able to create apps, companies that will create technologies. We just more so as a service function to ensure we create the biggest impact for those patients so that we can elicit trust, you know, between ourselves being of diverse descent and as well as a patient that we also want to represent as well. That's not to say we're forgetting everybody else. We want to accommodate everybody. But we realize that data is important in the span of clinical research. And if we want to make precision medicine, if we want to make effective therapies, we have to have inclusion inclusion for all types of patients involved. It's such a compelling combination of sort of doing the right thing, social justice, and, and then compel- the science. It's amazing. Just to, to hark back a minute... Can you share a little bit of sort of what were some, as you were getting there, and obviously you're still evolving, but what were some of the ups and downs or the highs and lows that you experienced along the way? Oh, man, I could, I could be here for another <laughs> two hours. <laughs> right? <laughs> Initially, it's always about, okay, I think when we were kind of evolving into really where we are today, you know, initially people were asking us, well, how do you monetize that? Right? What is the specific value proposition in that? Because I think a lot of organizations, and that's no fault of their own, they're focused on the science. We understand that. Uh, and they were never designed or disciplined to understand that social engineering and social science actually is as integrative as the biological science as you need to be able to design and develop therapies. And realizing that those two identities have to merge, you know, from not just saying, hey, uh, we're just only creating messages. No, each organization has to have an impactful social message to ensure that medicines work for everybody. And as we're seeing it now, there's a concerted focus because of what COVID-19 did. But early on, everybody was like, well, I, I don't really see this as like an opportunity. I don't see this as a market. I don't see this as a specific area where we need to focus on. So there weren't specific types of groups like that, even though that there may be initiatives it wasn't necessarily to the level of impact of where it is right now. 
So a lot of our struggles from when you on to try to translate that message, you know, was, was always met with criticism, was always met with, with specific doubts to say, hey, what impact can you actually make in that area? But what we did see, however, is that when we started working with the WHO and the UN, they saw it early on. And that's how we were able to be successful and to, to work across the sea, work across the pond in India, in parts of Africa, in parts of you know Southeast Asia, and on infectious disease, oncology, rare disease as well. So kind of our subject matter expertise happens to be in infectious disease and rare disease, ultra rare as well. And we are becoming known as like that specialty group where we get into the hard places. We work on the hard cases. Right. And we're able to to stand up clinical programs in the most difficult to reach areas where it's uncommon for like a larger organization to do like an IQVIA where in the snowfall of their own, they have many different sites in many different areas and many different locations. But I think through what we've seen is that we've relied on technology so much that we forgot everybody else who can't have access to that technology and sites that are less fortunate to not have that technology. And that's kind of where we come in to be able to bridge those centers that do have technology to those that don't. It's so insightful. And I just love this social science needs to be integrated with the biology and the scientific work overall. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, Red, this is fascinating. And I love that you're so focused on the opportunity and social impact. I can imagine that this work is also born out of the level of risk and negative impacts, right, of not mm -hmm. being mindful and having integration into clinical trials and tech and science, accounting for all people. Uh, History is full <laughs> of examples. What are some of the risks and sort of the, I guess, the opposite of the North Stars, the things that you are hoping that as a society we don't repeat past mistakes and bias embedded into trials and other services and products? I'm glad that you're asking these questions. I love these types of questions because it allows me, as you can see, I'm excited about them, right? <laughs> <laughs> and what we see now in today's field is that trust is still that biggest factor of ensuring that we can actually reach out to these types of patient groups because that is still the biggest barrier to cross over only because of what, you know, as you were asserting, much of the history of medical science hasn't been too kind, right? And even though that, that specific epoch of medical science is still relatively recent, rather than what you've seen back in the 1700s, 1800s, you know, what has happened in the early 1800s, I mean, late 1800s and early 1900s, it's still really relatively recent. And we still have generations that are still alive today that has been exposed to it. So we still see the compound effect of that specific time. And yet that messaging is still emanating in today's terms. And yet it's that compound effect where they're focusing on, on trying to, you know, make sure that uh, communities of color are still keeping their people safe. And then you're looking at the industry and they're still focused on innovation. They're saying that we're going to focus on innovation, but you'll still use their same four blocks of saying, hey, we're going to create innovation within our four blocks, but yet not still kind of doing outreach, right? And when it becomes too difficult, they retreat and then they are say, well, we'll figure out another way to get to these areas later, right? That's the first messaging that has to be dismantled and we have to overcome. You can't wait for these things to be done later, right? You can't wait for 
for you specific initiatives to say, hey, let's keep that at the backseat and let's focus on our innovation, right? Because patients and product are one and the same the way that we look at it. Mm-hmm. It's nowhere different. We can't focus it in, in different contexts. We have to look at it in the same way as if, you know, I am trying to come up with a new cure for Alzheimer's. We know that, you know, half of our population is afflicted our underserved in underserved communities. Yeah, we don't have nearly enough data from those types of you know, communities to understand how some of the pathways work for, for therapies and how some of the degradation happens for, for diseases. So it becomes a disadvantage where we're just still utilizing compartmentalized data and not using the full scope of data to say, hey, we're creating innovation and yet we're still forgetting big parts of it that actually could make a difference, right? I think that's kind of been the messaging and some of the pitfalls that we've seen translated time and time again. You know, a lot of big companies have a lot of great marketing messages to say, hey, we're, we're focused on these areas. We're trying to do these great things, but yet we're still seeing the same outcomes. And what we realize is that this is not a fast journey. You can't wait for one year. This is going to be as long as it needs to take in order for everybody to have accommodation for for these opportunities. And that's where the hard work comes in. That's where the actual massive collaboration that needs to happen between pharma and groups like myself and and others in a similar vein are trying to tackle as well. You know, Grapevine Health is doing great. City Block Health is doing great things, as well as some allegiances to other organizations like Planark and Acclinate. You know, they're doing great things in their respective areas. And they're also in the area to try to tackle health equity, uh, health disparities. And we want to be able to kind of create that massive collaboration engine where pharma is also looking at people like us to in order for us to facilitate medicine, right? Facilitate medicinal research and looking at how we translate new outcomes for Mm -hmm. those types of patients. Right. Instead of the same old, same old, same data, same information and just regurgitating it in different ways. Yeah. You know, your passion is incredible. And so I have sort of a two part question, but you talked about innovation and you obviously that's a key part of what's you know, in your soul. Talk a little bit about you. Like, where does that drive to innovate come from? Where does that emanate from? Well, you know what? Um, honestly, it really just stems from what that feeling that I had around when my father passed away, I, I saw him on his dying bed and realizing that there was opportunities where we talked about creating products, you know, like jetpacks and everything else, right? As, as you would, right? And uh, because of my engineer background, but then I didn't get the chance to, I didn't, I never had the chance to, you know, finalize any of it while he was still alive. And I think innately that type of fire still remains in me because I want to make sure that products that people like us need to see in the world need to be there yesterday, not 10 years from now, but yesterday. And I think the way that I've seen innovation transpire and translate is that it's been tried and true. Of course, that's why there's an industry for it, because we have a specific tried and true process of clinical development and, and to release it into the market, which makes sense. We understand it. But also as society evolves, as medicine evolves, as the way we think about innovation evolves, we also have to be accommodating to how technology can help leverage us into that new era on how to evolve with it as well. Especially when we think about 
reaching out to other people that we haven't been able to reach out. We can't use the same technology. We can't use the same processes to reach out to new people, right? We have to think about it in a way on being agile, if you will. So uh, the way that I think about innovation for me is how can people like me, I mean, I'm already in the industry, so I, I kind of have an awareness, but let's say if someone offered the street, didn't know anything about anything in healthcare, how do I quickly can talk to someone on the street, you know, who is in, from Brockton and really have 30 minutes to talk to him, like an elevator speech and have him want to be able to participate and help save his family, knowing that his family may have free indicators for specific conditions and want to participate. That's amazing. It's like, I love that because it's innovation with impact uh, and really in service to others. And that's an unusual model and a, a very special one, which is why what you do is so incredible. Thank you. Yeah, and speaking of service to others, Reg, we usually ask our guests how others would describe you. But in your case, we already know because you were nominated as a Power 50 last year. So the answer is movement maker. <laughs> what does that mean to you, being, being a movement maker, recognizing your past accomplishments? Maybe share with us a little bit what's ahead in your journey. It was actually an honor to actually receive a nomination to be, you know, the Power 50 movement maker. And for me, I love what I do. I love what I do. And, and it's an honor to be recognized for it, even though that's kind of not what I shoot for at first. I'm not looking for recognition. I don't think, you know, people who are in this area do it for recognition. But I think the way that I think about it is that it's finally being noticed that people are actually taking a stand and really having forward progression to help tackle some of the society's longstanding issues. And it's really starting to create a constellation of movement makers, of people who are taking initiatives so that we can now point to people that say, hey, Pharma, there are people who are actually trying to tackle this. Why aren't you talking to these types of groups? Why are we still here when we notice that there are people in this area, right? So it's holding dual responsibility and accountability for us as a society and us as an industry as well to be able to move things forward. And, you know, some of the accomplishment that I would say is that we finally are at a point where we're almost at a million patients on our platform. I think as of yesterday, we're 3,000 shy, 3,000 people <laughs> shy. <laughs> but each one is very important, right? So we don't take accountability until, you know, we reach that milestone. And I know we were able to reach 750,000 patients characterized and developed for nuanced therapies, but we want to get 10 million, right? We want to get to 20 million. We want to get, we want to get a, we want to also become global. We want to also think about it, how impactful pharmaceutical science can be for all types of patients to say, Hey, here are some of the learnings that we actually have from that angle of what we know from specific disease settings. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and really get to a point where we become like a Google, right. But for, you know, for people of color in underserved communities to say, hey, we know this is kind of what we're going to be able to proactively do. Mm -hmm. And we're going to reach out to those patients and, and facilitate clinical trials and help you design your products to be better and be effective for these populations. And that's essentially what we want to be able to become, a precision medicine thought leader. Your field is so constantly evolving, and that's probably in the innovation and um, the discovery and just the goals that you have are so exciting. And in a field like yours and the allied fields that's 
constantly and quickly evolving. You know, I'm curious a little bit about sort of your view of the overall landscape. So what about it are you optimistic about? And what are some of the things that worry you? When I think about precision medicine, I think we're so quickly to realize the tokenization of that word, precision. And I know everybody wants to get there. And with the advent of CRISPR and Cas9 and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, precision diagnostics as well, it's awesome. It's awesome that we're, we're being able to facilitate these types of, you know, technologies that could really be, you know, modification tools and modification signals for biology. What I am optimistic about is that we'll be able to expand these types of reach for all types of diseases. I really do see that on a horizon where that will be advantageous where anybody else can just walk in and say, hey, how do we help modify what I have, what I'm inflicted with, to be able to have treatment options for it, treatment plans for it, where it doesn't have to become just a death sentence, right? Where it can be where people could live a little bit longer and also have the quality of life that they're looking for, not just longevity, but also to have the quality as well. I wouldn't want to be 98 and still be bedridden and I can't move anywhere because it wouldn't make sense for me at that point. If I could be able to walk and dance and do the boogie, definitely, right? I, want, I think I want to get to that point. And you know, I think what worries me is still kind of that traditional approach to getting to new innovation, to new steps, to new heights, is that we're still going to use a specific section of data in order for people to reach there where not a lot of people have been able to, you know, from a precision approach or from even a demographic or diversity approach have been able to accommodate or at least get gain access to these types of technologies as well. So I kind of implore the industry to start looking at it from a wide angle net to say, if we're making, you know, and, and I know uh, Jennifer Duna had the uh, Nobel Prize for, for CRISPR, and that's amazing. That's amazing for a woman to accomplish that feat, you know, especially with this type of technology. What I also, you know, born out of in California. So we want to be able to see that here in a city like Lawrence, right? We're here in this, you know, in cities like Brockton and Dorchester. And I know that's local, but uh, maybe in other states as well. In addition to some of the specialized academic centers that, that has access to these technologies, we want to be able to have PhD and intelligent level researchers in these low lying areas as well, because the passion is there. We shouldn't always see that type of initiative taken by, you know, doctors without borders, which is a worthy cause. But we want to see that type, same type of passion for doctors without borders in our own backyard, too. Reg, there was a time where we could not have imagined that we would be using, you know, AI and data mining to find opportunities to repurpose drugs uh, and treatment in new areas, something like that, right, was at one point unimaginable. What are, if you're looking ahead, what are some of the things that you think will be new discoveries and disruptive in the field overall? I do see AI still becoming kind of a leader in that advantage because it's going to help us really start dissecting and characterizing how not just medicine, but also how to repurpose treatment options, treatment plans, right? And I think we haven't had the chance yet to think about innovation in a treatment regimen perspective. We're always thinking about from the medicine approach, but not yet the treatment option. And I think that's actually going to be very disruptive where you don't have to take the traditional route of doing radiotherapy or chemotherapy or any other specific uh, type of aspect in that scope, but also, hey, you know what? Take this specific pill. We'll get back to you in a week. 
and then drink this water and, and make, you know, whatever's in that water, right? It, it helps with the treatment. It has a treatment plan. I'm just kind of, I know I'm just kind of really just oversimplifying it, but perhaps no, we can get to for that our, <laughs> For, for um, <laughs> listeners who are not, uh, including myself, <laughs> who are not rooted in the science, it's really helpful. If Absolutely. you're looking in the rearview mirror like 20 years from now, what do you hope will have happened? I'm hoping that my mission is commonplace. It doesn't become a separate initiative. It doesn't become a separate ask. It doesn't become a secondary thought. It doesn't become uh, something else that we have to have focus groups on. It's just a fabric of our research aspect. It's just a fabric, right? We think about it one and the same when we create medicine, when we create something new, right? We think about everybody that needs to be involved. And sure that the FDA is kind of now pushing towards that, with the latest draft guidance released a couple of years ago, now we realize that it shouldn't have to come to that level where the federal government is trying to now crack down on it. It should already be through osmosis, something that is the fabric of why, why we do what we do. And I'm grateful for the younger generation because they're socially aware, they're socially conscious. They're starting to be able to understand that as we start blending cultures and blending uh, demographics, they're starting to become, and they're starting to realize as well that, hey, you know, a lot of these things have to change from the way that we used to do things. And being able to translate and transition into those types of areas of new social paradigms is going to be critical. And I think they're going to help us carry there, you know, get to that point where maybe that next, you know, 14500 CEO is going to be that the younger generation and say, hey, this is a standard across the board. This is, we, we don't think of this as an afterthought. We think of this now, front and center, and really now are able to treat more people, have more coverage, have CMS expanded for Medicaid, Medicare, you know, have quite a bit of other aspects as well. So I'm hopeful where, when you think about releases of new innovation, they can start in, in low-lying cities as well. Not just the hybrid or the advanced uh, science centers that, that you see across Cambridge and Caltech and, and, you know, San Francisco, you know, the Silicon Valley, but also in other areas as well, like Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and, and many other areas there. Yeah. You know, Reg, your vision and sort of your aspirations are, are, are inspirational. And I wonder, um, maybe we'd love to hear from your perspective to share with our listeners some of the best advice that you can offer whether it's something you got from a past mentor, your own past experience, which you've spoken of. So maybe talk a little bit about that. What are some of the best advice you can give sort of rising leaders and, and even perhaps your advice for the C-suite who are in your industry, but in other industries as well? So the way that I've always thought about collaboration, right, is it's not to say do it through diversity. It's do it through intention. And I believe that people gravitate towards your intention rather than saying, hey, we're going to create an initiative for diversity. And I think that I would like to see a lot more C-suite groups focus in that thought process, that methodology to say, let's do this with this intention. You know, I've had the opportunity to connect with some of the C-suite in Eli Lilly and I think in Takeda as well. I and mean, I think they're trying to translate into that area, but yet they're still kind of really understanding on how to formulate these types of identities. And I believe when you are able to do it through intention, you're gonna have a lot more volunteerism that people do wanna be able to, to help shape and navigate the waters with you, 
rather than trying to make it a mandate from internal or external focuses to say, hey, let's kind of create these types of groups. Let's try and create these avenues for people to want to get in and really just do it for posterity. It shouldn't be done for posterity. It should be done more so for impact. You're going to realize that more people want to be able to be involved and want to be able to connect. And people will always find a way to make business work, no matter what, how it looks like or how it's constructed. But people will always find a way to make it work. And I think that's what we we forget nowadays is that that true specific way of, of really creating impactful and intentional uh, mission statements becomes the norm when we have that first focus. And I think even from the rising stars, I built this company by myself, essentially. Not very easy, right? Not very easy because a lot of when you look at the, the demographics, a lot of single founder companies fail a lot more than co-founders. And for me to last almost seven years, that's almost kind of an anomaly, right? So we're here, you know, to say your passion and your mission means something. Of course, surround yourself with advisors, surround yourself with mentors, surround yourself with those that are intentionally want to be able to see you succeed. And of course, it takes effort and it takes time. But as soon as you're able to kind of bring some clarity and context to what you want to drive towards, and it's easy to say, hey, I want to change the world. But mm-hmm. what about the world you want to change? And really start driving down that specificity so you can understand where your benchmark is and where your strengths are. So therefore, people will follow you based on your strengths and also weaknesses, but also help you complement what you don't have. Right. And that's kind of what I found. And that's how the team that I built helped me kind of still maintain its growth is finding that, that type of growth pattern for us. You know, just a quick follow to that. So you founded that company by yourself. Is there a pivotal moment? Like there was a dark moment. You're like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And sort of what what caused you to push forward? Well, I mean, there was there was many times, right? Many times. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it had to be a point where, and I think I tell this story quite often, where I started the company with 600 bucks. But I didn't have a network at the time. I didn't have I didn't have people. I didn't have anything to say, hey, let's invest in this, you know, because of the things that, that people have usually done before, they always thought of it as a hustle. Oh, I'm trying to just hustle, right? So I saw myself believing in myself before anybody else did. And I still forge ahead with 600 bucks in my name to my name and, and really been able to kind of catalyze what it means. And I think it was like in 2017 where it really got tough, right? And of course, you know, you, you face these ups and down curves, and but it's expected in a journey of an entrepreneur, right? You know, I remember to this day, we were two weeks away from deciding if we're going to close the company or not. Two weeks. It really got that specifically tough. And then that's kind of when the ray of light came. And then that's when I started realizing that, and I now I'm a movie connoisseur myself. So I remember the day, cause I was working nonstop seven days a week for two years. Right. And I, I mean, a year, two years. And, you know, my brain was kind of fried at the time. So I kind of had to take a break just so I can realize what I needed to do next. So I watched this movie any given Sunday. Football movie. I love that uh, movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Great Al Pacino. L-O-Q-J, Al Pacino. Yeah. Yeah. So, I remember this one scene that he's in the locker room motivating the team. He's he's like every inch, every yard, right? Fighting every inch, fighting every yard. And then it showed like flashbacks of him kind of just 
going through what his journey was initially. And I thought about it with the flashbacks of my family, my dad and everything else. And then it woke me up. It really woke me up. And it really said, I got to keep going. I have to keep going because I felt like he was talking to me that day to say, keep going. And that's kind of where I pushed and I keep pushing. That's great. Great story. Inspiration <laughs> and strength can come from anywhere if you're looking for it. This is a great segue into our rapid fire questions. This round is a tradition at C-Speak. This is how we close out the show. And this first question you've touched upon a little bit. You know, you're in a serious business and demanding role. We're really curious. What do you do for fun? <laughs> um, well, I love to eat, right? I love to watch movies. You know, I've been a movie connoisseur, but I also love to uh, you know, take photographs. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like an avid photographer or like a, uh, you know, amateur photographer, I, I would say at best. Even though I still have like a professional camera, I, I still love to kind of be able to use expressionism between black and white photography and, and just kind of seeing it cinematic kind of development to really help kind of shape my artistic side of things. Right. So, you know, I, I do quite a bit of that. I used to do a lot more. Uh, I used to be as, as crazy adventurous as, as you can be, right? I used to do skydiving. I test drove a Formula One car one time before. So it's those things that I got myself into, of course. And of course, you know, when I was you younger... You have an appetite for adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I was going to ask what's something people might not know about you, but I think we just hit uh, that, that was know, it. two things. That was Any, it. Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll, I'll leave right. the other thing. You, Reg, do you exhibit anywhere your photography? I, I haven't as of yet. You know, it's more kind of just like, you know, for me, Right. But I, I would love to get the chance to exhibit maybe at MoMA, maybe sometime in the future. But, hey, um, I will let them decide if I'm worthy of it. Uh, right. <laughs> Beyond what we've discussed in which your passion really came through, what else are you passionate about? What causes are you passionate about? Well, you know what? Um, I periodically help with Habitat for Humanity, you know, for, for the homeless. I'm ashamed to say that I haven't been there in a few years. I know, I know, I think it's because of COVID as well. Um, but but one of the I'm going I, there in a couple of weeks to do a build. So you're welcome to join me. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, count, well let them count me in for that because yeah. I, I certainly want to get back into it. I want to get back into it. See you how know, you are with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and causes where, uh, you know what? I, I have done a circuit where I spoke to high school students in, you know, underserved communities about STEM, right? I, I love to be able to do that and do more of that. I've done that in the past. And I kind of want to get back into that because I think just being able and you know, I received the cards, you know, after each session. And, you know, it really is motivating for me to say, you know, to say that I touched somebody, right? And that they're, they're excited uh, to do it as well. Because I know when I grew up in Miami, you know, I didn't really have anybody that I could point to and just say, hey, uh, I actually want to do that, too. It wasn't until I took a field trip to the college that I went to for FIU. And that really got me in one to say, this is what engineering does. I want to do this, too. And that's kind of what, you know, and, and history kind of just spoke for itself. Well, it's easy to see why you were named a movement maker. And the BBJ has just named the 2022 Power 50 movement makers who were you hoping would make that list? You know what? Actually, the one I was hoping actually did make the list, Ken Turner. <laughs> so that's great. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's it's good to see him. And of course, 
there's there's other groups that I I also there's other people that I do want to see you know like Bobby you know he used to be at Mass Bio now he's kind of with with you know small private you know a firm uh, Travis McCready as well I do know that Carolyn's you know, taking notes Reg I am right <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Great. And um, I remain in touch with them and, you know, they're doing great things. And I wish I had enough time to to really circulate back with them. But I definitely you I definitely will. Uh, but there, there's a lot of great, great energies here in, in Boston. And they definitely should have their there's time in the light. I could see you and Bob Coughlin having a good time together. That's a fitting closing because Boston really is about its people. What's a wish for all of us that you have, Reg? Well, I wish that we get to a point where we're all able to really put aside differences. And I know this is more like a template response, but I really do wish that that we think about intrinsic innovation for all. And whether it's the political systems, whether it's the healthcare systems, whether it's the financial systems, whether it's the, the housing systems. Uh, really start aligning on how to benefit the populations. And I know there's there's always going to be laggards and and people that are fall with outside that norm. Or, you know, if you think about it, a bell curve, but also think about those people who fall outside of the bell curve, right? Those people that that also need help too, right? Because I, I realized long ago, I used to be on food stamps. It helped save me, right? Going through this journey where I, many times where I didn't think I was going to be able to make it, but it's those types of opportunities that, you know, this is, for example, where things like that should be created for populations that are immigrants or other people that that may not have, you know, an opportunity to kind of go through the system. But also just kind of think of it on how do we help support those that, that need help. Well, thank you, Reg. This was a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It really, really was. Our guest today was Reginald Swift, founder and CEO of Rubik's Life Science. Reg, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. This was just an amazing and energizing conversation. You know, I can't thank you guys enough. You know, I'm just grateful to really be a part of the fabric, right, of the Boston Journal and the executive network to be able to really translate how change can actually happen from different types of organizations. Because if we have actually a diversity of thought and everybody else succeeds, Right. And then everybody else is able to to grow. That's what we want from an industry. That's what we want from society. And, you know, I'm just kind of happy to be just one person to, to really try to make a difference. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Reg, and for sharing your insights. Absolutely. You're welcome. I'm Saskia Epstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones. And this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Reginald Swift founder and CEO of Rubik's LS. You can find C-Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speed.